please this morning to Psalm number 22. Welcome to those of you that are visiting with us this morning, and it's nice to see some familiar faces that we don't see very often anymore, and it's nice to have our regulars here. Those of you that know me that are here often know that I have a very much a love-hate relationship with the holidays. <clears throat> I love them from a family time and from a relaxation time, but I always struggle a little bit with preaching in the, in the holidays, and so I appreciate your patience and indulgence there. Let's go ahead and stand, please. And we're going to read the entirety of Psalm 22 this morning. To the chief musician upon Ijalath Shehar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring... O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praise of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man a reproach of men, and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of the earth. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren, 
In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him, all ye seed of Jacob. Glorify him and fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the afflictions of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. And they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. And none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. That he hath done this. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for not just these words, but for the event that they describe. Thank you for a Savior who suffered for us. And thank you that that suffering was not in vain, but that it accomplished not only your glory, but our salvation. I pray that you would minister your word to us today, that we would understand not only your great love for us, but the pattern that is set before us for our own lives. And I pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Were I only to talk this morning about the Incarnation, I would have to point out to you that it is almost without parallel for its monumental significance as pertaining to God Himself. That a God who had existed in an unbroken eternity as only a spirit. He had always been a trinity. There had always been a father-son-spirit relationship, but there had never been flesh. And now the Word would become flesh. And the Word will remain as far as we are able to tell. He will remain flesh. This is not a momentary event in which he became flesh and then returned and became spirit once again. But he will remain flesh. It is monumental in its significance. And it isn't just that. When God created Adam and Eve, when God created the first human beings, the Bible is very clear that they were the third among life forms. God, of course, has no creator and was not created. He is self-existing and eternal. And then there are the angels. And then slightly underneath the angels were the humans. 
which is why Psalm 8 talks about humanity in that way, that we were made a little lower than the angels. But when God became flesh, and through the events that happened to him in the flesh, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation, humanity was elevated far above, Colossians tells us, all principality and power. And we have now, by virtue of the incarnation of God in the person of Christ, found humanity exalted above the angels that have existed for all eternity. The incarnation, folks, its significance cannot be contained simply in a few days' observation and celebration. But of course, the incarnation does not stand alone. It was not just something that happened. It happened for a purpose, for several purposes. And one of those purposes is the event that we have just read about in Psalm number 22. It is not just simply a cliche. It is not simply a song or a cantata that he was born to die. The word became flesh. And the word then, as flesh, bore the wrath of God on behalf of all flesh so that all who would call upon Jesus Christ could be saved from God's sin or from God's wrath, which they deserve because of their sinfulness. And so Psalm 22, and I would just take a moment to point out to you, at the end of, after the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we turned our attention to Psalm number 23, that beloved Psalm. Psalm 22, 23, 24 are all written by David. That's true of many Psalms. But Psalm 22, 23, and 24 form a trilogy of Psalms that describe God in his sovereign role. In Psalm number 22, He is the suffering Savior, and that is what we will consider this morning. In Psalm 23, he is the shepherd of the sheep. And in Psalm 24, he is the sovereign of the world. He is the king who will reign, and that is actually alluded to or mentioned in Psalm number 22. So Psalm 22 then deals with Christ as our suffering Savior, and I would suggest that this is appropriate for us for two reasons. Number one, we really did need somebody who could absorb God's wrath on our behalf, whose righteousness was such that he could take all of the penalty that we deserve, justify us, and make it possible for us to live. This is something that we could never do on our own. But he also gives us a pattern. And in this psalm, we don't just have a Savior who is suffering. We have a Savior who in his suffering is teaching us the proper attitude that we should have in our own suffering. And let us not make any mistakes, folks. God's people suffer. There is real suffering going on at Westwood Heights this week. Two of our members have experienced the death of a parent. One of our members is recovering from surgery, waiting to hear if the surgery is all that will be necessary 
and another of our members is facing surgery this week. Then there's the normal suffering that we experience in a sinful world, and then there are sufferings that are going on that only those who are experiencing them know. Perhaps they choose not even to share with others. And so God's people suffer, and as our Savior is suffering, He is suffering on our behalf, but He is instructing us in the right way to think and talk to God in the midst of our suffering. If you want to look at the psalm, and we will read through it again as we work our way through it. Psalm 22 is one of the clearest testimonies to the inspiration of Scripture that you will find anywhere in the Bible. If you'll indulge me some rough numbers, the time span between King David and Jesus is about a thousand years. And yet David is not just writing in this kind of vague general sense something bad is going to happen. He is writing in absolute clarity and amazing detail. He is actually telling us words that Jesus will speak and things that Jesus will experience. And you can take your study Bible and read through the crucifixion accounts and find numerous references back to Psalm 22 where David has actually, through the inspiration of the Spirit, of course, not because he's really a smart guy, has already anticipated these events. Verses 1 through 21 of Psalm number 22 are three stanzas, contain three stanzas that describe the Savior in His suffering. There are descriptions, first person accounts of the Savior in His suffering that come to us through the life of David. As David writes, there is no doubt his own personal agony. But if I could throw a big word at you, I'm not trying to insult you that you don't know it, but Psalm 22 is what we call proleptic. More than anything else, it is looking forward. It is taking us down the road a thousand years to what will happen to Christ on the cross. So let's look at the three stanzas that are contained in verses 1 through 21 that address the Savior in his suffering. And let me give to you an ABC, if I may, of those three stanzas. The first stanza, verses 1 through 5, our Savior is alone. He suffered alone. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Abandoned by the Father. Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, thou hearest me not. In the night season am not silent. I am alone. And he is alone in spite of the fact that he has sought the Father. He's not alone. Nobody can say to him, you're alone, and it's an aloneness that comes of your own making. It is an aloneness that comes even though day and night he has sought the presence of the Father. 
And yet, folks, here's the instructive part. Right? It is not uncommon for God's people in suffering to feel like they are alone. Now, Jesus is genuinely abandoned by God. This is part of the judgment that he is experiencing. I'm not calling that into question in any way. All of the horrors of hell, the eternal torment and the eternal fire and the eternal consciousness and the eternal awareness of one's position and the hopelessness that certainly must come over those who know that they will never experiencing any other thing than eternal torment. They are abandoned by God. He will not hear them. He will not help them. He will not look upon them. Christ is alone. When we suffer, it is not uncommon for us to believe that we are alone. And that we are isolated from other people. We are suffering in a way that others cannot understand. Cannot identify with. And sometimes it feels like we are suffering apart from the presence of God. We ask for help. We seem to get none. We make an appeal He seems not to hear. And it is not uncommon for God's people to become very angry and frustrated at him in moments like that. To wonder what the point is. To wonder why they should continue to bother. But if you will again turn your attention back to Psalm number 22, we notice that this is not what happens either to David or to the Messiah. Verse number three, but thou art holy. You are not committing any sin by leaving me alone in this moment. You are holy. Thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel, our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not Confounded. He is crying. He is alone. He is crying. He is unheard. And yet he is aware that God's track record is a track record of helping Israel. Our fathers cried. You responded to that. Our fathers needed help. And yet again, folks, he is alone. He is alone. Forsaken by God alone. The second stanza that describes his suffering is verses 6 through 11. And just as he is alone in verses 1 through 5, he is beaten and berated in verses 6 through 11. But I am a worm, no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. All they that see me laugh to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying he trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. He is berated. He is beaten. Isaiah tells us that he is beaten to be almost beyond human recognition. I'm sure I've told you this story, but it's a lifetime ago when I worked at Indiana State Prison. 
one of my <clears throat> duties, there were a number of us that <clears throat> we had received training and we were known, what were known as trip officers. If somebody in the prison needed to be taken outside of the prison, they always sent two officers who had gone through the training of how to handle this. And I get a radio call one night to come in and there is this young man sitting and he is barely sitting. He can barely sit up. And he is the most spectacular array of colors I have ever seen in my life. He is blue and he is yellow and he is green. And standing there is a deputy sheriff who is explaining to us that he received this emergency call to show up to help another officer who was wrestling with this guy. And he said, I probably would have shot him, but I had my flashlight in my hand, so I just commenced beating him. And I beat him, and I beat him, and I beat him, and I beat him until we finally subdued him. And they brought him to the prison for us to take him to the hospital. He was as beaten as anybody I've ever seen. As I said, blue, yellow, green, red, swollen, eyes barely opened. That's the kind of beating Jesus received. Almost unrecognizable. And then the ridicule. And... Hebrews tells us that he despised the shame of it. He, 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 he didn't ridicule the shame of it, but he was relatively impervious to it. He made light of it in the sense that he didn't let what we would call our, his pride get in the way of experiencing it. He was absolutely and utterly humiliated as he hung on the cross, folks. We know this unclothed. Surrounded by people who took turns making fun of him. Hey, Savior, save yourself. This is what he experienced. Not only is he alone, he is berated, scorned, and held in contempt. You can read about it in Matthew 27, 39 through 44. The verbal abuse that Jesus suffered as he hung on the cross for our sins. And yet, folks, to go back again, because the the psalm is not simply about what he suffered. It's not just a sterile account of what he experienced. It is how he experienced it. As he is hanging on the cross, abandoned by the Father, ridiculed by men, what is his attitude? What does he think in his heart about the God who has done this to him? Verse number 9, But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope. Right? He, He recalls past mercies and kindnesses. Verse number 10, I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. So in his solitude, not angry, not bitter, not hateful. In his humiliation, not angry, not bitter, not hateful. And that brings us to the third stanza, verses 12 
through 19. Or through 20, <clears throat> 21. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beat me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. He is experiencing great cruelty. He is alone. He is berated. He is being treated with cruelty, surrounded by his enemies. And Bashan is an enemy that the Israelites fought in the book of Numbers. The name of their king was Og, and Og is claimed as, and I'll read it to you, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy. Og is claimed as one of the last of the giants. Deuteronomy 3.11, for only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabbath of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits was the length thereof, and four cubits the breadth of it after the cubit of a man. This massive bed for this massive man. And this is how Jesus describes his enemies in their cruelty. And they are coming at him like they are roaring lions. The passage conveys, folks, this part of the passage, this stanza conveys the fact that our Savior has this sense of being absolutely and utterly overwhelmed by what he is experiencing. He is all alone. There's no man that will help him. The Father does not help him. He has been beaten and berated. And the cruelties just continue to mount. He says in verse 16 that dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And dog is a very strong word. One of the ways that it is used in the Bible is to describe a homosexual male prostitute. Verse number 15, my strength is dried up like a scrap of broken pottery, like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. You know what it is on a hot summer's day to be so thirsty that your mouth is dry and all of the saliva is gone. He is almost, folks, at wit's end 
humanly. Thou hast brought me to the dust of the earth. For the dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, I may tell all my bones. But they look and they stare upon me, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. It's almost as if he is describing, folks, this, I'm not talking about a mental nervous breakdown, but this complete and utter collapse of himself physically. Verse 14, poured out like water. We might say something like, my my knees feel like they're made of jello. I'm losing my physical strength. My bones are out of joint. My heart is sinking into my stomach like melting wax. Surrounded by the vilest of sinners, human beings who are no different than dogs. But again, folks, verse number 19. We have not again just a series of statements about his suffering, but we have his attitude in the midst of it. What does he think about his God now? Completely physically spent, totally humiliated, without any resources. Verse number 19, but be not thou far from me, O Lord, my strength. That's really an amazing statement, isn't it? In spite of, in light of the man who has just described how he has no strength left at all. As if the only thing that is holding him from utter and complete collapse, folks, are the nails in the cross. Bones out of joint. Heart melting mouth dry, tongue cleaving to the roof of it. But God, you are my strength. You are my strength. Haste thee to help me, verse number 19. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, which which I I don't really know how it's translated in other versions. The, The word refers to my unique being, me. Help me. There's not a sinfulness to the prayer, but there is definitely a selfishness to the prayer. I need help. Deliver me. From the power of the dog, save me from the lion's mouth. For thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns, which is probably a word that would refer to a wild bull, an undomesticated bull of some kind. So again, folks, in verses 1 through 21, we have three stanzas. I've called them alone, berated, cruelty. 
all describing the depths of the Savior's suffering. But instead of anger and resentment, there is only faith and expectation. It is highly instructive. It is an insight into the righteousness of our Savior. It is an insight as to how it is possible for us to suffer in this world. And that brings us then to the second part of the psalm, verses 22 to 31. Verses 1 through 21 are a description of the Savior in His suffering. Verses 22 through 31 are a description of the Savior in His salvation. If all He did was suffer, it would not have helped us. And we are glad for that. But you know, folks, we need to be reminded that it is not all that we do in this life either. We don't simply suffer day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, to no point. If you'll note, the first clue that we have had a major change in direction is, of course, found in verse number 22 where the perspective changes from what he is presently experiencing to what he anticipates in the future. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. I will. Verses 1 through 21. I am. I am. I am. Verse 22. I will. I will. The second thing that we note is the obvious change of perspective. How do we go from the dust of death, verses, verse number 15. Thou hast brought me to the dust of death. We've transitioned, folks, from death to life in verse number 22. The implication is clear that our Savior is anticipating a resurrection after the suffering. There is a note of victory to verses 22 through 31 that does not exist in verses 21 through 21. And he declares his own personal intent. Verse number 22, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. And this is something that we find David saying often that he will bear testimony to the Lord in the midst of the congregation. This is something that Jesus does. And this is something that he does after his resurrection. And in verses 23 and 24, he calls for others to praise the Lord as well. Ye that fear the Lord, praise Him. All ye the seed of Jacob, 
glorify Him. Fear Him, all ye the seed of Israel. For He hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath He hid His face from Him, but when He cried unto Him, He heard. And, and we just have to ask ourselves, folks, I mean, we, we need to think about this. The psalm begins with this question, why have you forsaken me? And it soon transitions into, he does not forsake anybody. And folks, I would point out again that this is not just, right? we're not just reading a, a technical bulletin. A simple statement of fact, we are reading the experiences of our own Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who knew what it was on the one hand to genuinely be abandoned by the Father. And who knew what it was on the other hand to be welcomed and received and exalted by the same Father. And he says then in verse number 25, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. And again, we we are mindful that David is writing this. He is writing of his own experiences. He is writing of his own testimony. But he is also writing on behalf of the future Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse number 26, he reassures all of the faithfulness of God, the meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek Him. Your heart, notice this, shall live forever. The promise of resurrection for all. And then in verse number 27, folks, David turns his attention away from the nation of Israel to the world at large because our Savior is not a local Savior. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. And you can anticipate then in verse number 27 the coming of the Great Commission at the end of Matthew and Luke. Go and teach all the nations so that all the ends of the world may come and turn to the Lord. Verse 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among the nations. All the world will turn to him and all the families of the nations will worship before him because he is the king and he governs all. In verse 29, all they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. None can keep alive his own soul. Whether one has a lot or one has a little, we're all in the same boat. None of us keep ourselves going. Verse number 30, a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. And the idea there, folks, is that it will be remembered and it will be retold. That 
that God loves to hear the story of those that trust in him. And they shall come, verse 31, and declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. There is just so much New Testament anticipation in verses 22 to 31. The evangelization of the world, the coming of the kingdom, the testimony of those who believe, their recognition of the necessity of the work of God, their reliance upon it, it is all there. So what we have, folks, in this psalm is again, It is a plain declaration of fact. This is what Christ experienced. We are instructed to be mindful of him. How many times did we read in the book of Hebrews to put our attention upon our Savior, to think about him, to remember what he had done? And here is this Old Testament account of the horrors that he experienced on the cross. And unlike the movie that glamorized the brutality, folks, the psalm magnifies the faith of the sufferer. I'm alone, but I trust you. I am being humiliated, but I remember you. I'm being treated cruelly, but you're not cruel. And when all is said and done, I see how this is going to turn out. So this is very instructive for us, folks. It can be very helpful for us as a template in our own suffering. We're we're not saviors. We're not suffering on behalf of somebody else's sin and rising from the dead to rule them, but we are God's people and we suffer. And there is a purpose and a point to that suffering and there is a termination to it. There is an ending day. God killed our Savior with great violence, but he resurrected him with great exaltation. Let's pray.